Well, I'm going to ask you to turn this morning to Matthew chapter 26. And I'll explain why in a moment that we're turning to Matthew 26. The great philosopher, Charlie Brown, of the comic strips Peanuts, was uh, speaking one day to Lucy in the cartoons, and he boiled life down to simplicity. When Lucy asked him, Life is a mystery, Charlie Brown. Do you know the answer? He said, Be kind. Don't smoke. Be prompt. Smile a lot. Eat sensibly. Avoid cavities. Mark your ballot carefully. Avoid too much sun. Send overseas packages early. Love all creatures above and below. Ensure your belongings and try to keep the ball low. Before he could get any more of these platitudes out, Lucy turned to Charlie Brown and she said, Hold real steel, still, because I'm going to hit you a very sharp blow upon the nose. In other words, if you try to boil life down to just these traditional sayings that have been passed down from one generation to another, I'm going to smack you upside the head. It made her sick. Today... We have finished last week the Sermon on the Mount, and today is like a parenthesis. That is, we're going to start a new series next week. We're going to do one on the church, the meaning and the purpose of the church in the New Testament, and where we all fit in in that. But this morning, I thought it would be a great chance, because we're entering into a season of celebration. We have Thanksgiving coming up, we have Christmas coming up, we have New Year's, etc., to speak about celebrations, things that have been passed down, traditions we have kept, some that we have held to, not really knowing why we do them, but practices that come to us year after year. For most of us, the celebrations we keep are like living cliches. We just have always heard about them. We've always done it that way, and so we decide we're going to do it that way again. Some of them to us are sacred. They've been passed down. We do them. We don't really know why we do them, but we just do them. They're sacred to us, but we have to be careful because to other people, well, they're just different. It's like the mom who brought her three-year-old daughter to big church one Sunday. And during big church, the choir walked down the aisle. All the lights were turned low. The choir came down, each holding a candle. So you can imagine the impact of seeing candles coming down the aisle and these people in robes and the little three-year-old girl was in wonder. The entire church was dead silent until finally the little girl broke out innocently and sang, Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. That's all she understood. That was her frame of reference. Not the traditional maintenance that that church had kept. In Matthew chapter 26, we come to a celebration of Passover. Jesus keeps a feast. In verse 17, let's begin there. Now, on the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. 
Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. And they were eating. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you notice in verse 17, Jesus says, I'm going to keep the Passover with my disciples. The New International Version translates it, I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples. This was a celebration, a celebration of Passover. Passover was a yearly feast. It was a long-standing traditional practice handed down from generation to generation. Every Jewish family would practice it, and they still do. It was a sacred tradition. It was a biblical tradition. And the way it happened is that in their history, there was a drought throughout the world and a famine which caused Jacob and his sons to go down to Egypt, where Joseph, the previously missing son, now prime minister of Egypt, protected them, brought them in, provided for them. It was there they were safe. It was there they flourished. It was there they prospered. And it was there they grew to large numbers for about 400 years. But eventually, a pharaoh arose who did not know who Joseph was and decided to make this growing population of foreigners, these Hebrews, become slaves. And so the taskmasters drove them to slavery to build their temples, their pyramids, etc. They cried out for a deliverer. God sent them a deliverer. His name was Moses. And on a specific night, as the death angel came through the land and the blood was put on the doorposts and the lintels of the house, It was the Pesach, the Passover, the stepping over from death into life as God preserved the children of Israel, brought them through the wilderness and took them into a new land. That night, Passover night, marked the beginning of their calendar. The calendar changed from that moment on. In fact, God said in Exodus 12, this month shall be for you the first month of your year. However, to Jesus Christ, this celebration had a deeper meaning. And in this traditional Passover festival, this celebration, Jesus shows them how the meaning had changed and became prophetic of himself. So this morning, what I'd like to do, and I've never given a message like this before, is talk about 
why we celebrate our celebrations. And I'm going to give you three reasons we celebrate, and I'll talk about the different festivals, even the ones we keep. Celebrations ratify our faith. Celebrations ratify our faith. It's like we're putting our stake down and saying, yes, I believe that. It was that way for the Jews. Here they were at Passover, and Passover was the ratification of their faith, saying, God is our deliverer. We prayed for deliverance. God did it. And so we celebrate that, ratifying our faith that God is the deliverer. There was another annual feast called Pentecost, another one called Tabernacles, all of them ratifications of what they believe. We believe that God is our provider. We believe that God is our sustainer. They had the Sabbath every week. God is our rest. They had Yom Kippur. The Lord God is our atonement. will provide atonement for us. All of these became traditions that were passed down and Jesus Christ, being Jewish, keeping kosher, celebrates this Passover feast with his disciples. It was a long-standing tradition. Have you all seen Fiddler on the Roof? Remember the opening scene? It's, it's Tevya. Tevya is the father of the family. It's in uh, ancient Russia, 1905, really. And uh, they're there in this poor community. He's a dairyman. And the first song is... Tradition, right? Remember that? Great, great tune. He talks about the importance of tradition that kept the Jewish people together for years. In fact, the the line that casts the name of the movie is when Tevye says, without our tradition, if we didn't have our tradition, we would be as shaky as a fiddler on the roof. And then the whole movie unfolds of how he's going to bend his traditions so that his daughters can marry the men that they love. It's all centering around the glue that kept them together as a nation tradition. Now, most of us, when we hear the term tradition, honestly, we, uh, we recoil a bit. In this modern age, this new generation of evangelical Christians, a lot of us don't like the idea of tradition simply because we were raised in certain traditional churches, perhaps. We didn't know the Lord in those traditions. We come out of them and we say, I'm not into tradition. And we can revert back to uh, the thinking of the Puritans who uh, shunned all external observances and moved completely internal. For instance, uh, to some of the Puritans, they didn't celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper externally or baptism externally, saying that uh, we are uh, having a fellowship with Jesus Christ to the Holy Spirit internally. Salvation is of faith. It's all internal. And so they would shun external celebrations of the gospel, including Christmas. But listen to this verse. I'm going to give you two of them written by Paul the Apostle to New Testament churches, 1 Corinthians 11. He says, keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And then he writes to the Thessalonian church, 2 Thessalonians, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. The word he uses, tradition, paradosis, is a simple word that means something passed down from one person to another, one generation to another. Remember 
the early church was mostly aural. They listened. They didn't all have Bibles like we have. They couldn't go home and search the scriptures and read a Bible commentary. So traditional apostolic teachings were passed down. Paul says, keep them. Some of those traditions were things like the Lord's Supper, baptism, which, by the way, both have Jewish roots celebrating Passover and cleansing. They were to keep some of these traditions. Uh, They kept certain creeds. They sung certain hymns. Some of them are included into the New Testament. They were to keep them, recite them. Now, having said that, and having acknowledged that these outward celebrations can be great ways to ratify our faith, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying, yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross for me and his blood washed away all my sin. When we get baptized, we're saying, I identify with Christ burial and resurrection at the same time traditions can become sacred cows the tradition themselves become sacred and so when you ask somebody can i ask you a question why do you practice that tradition why do you do it that way well uh uh we've uh, always done it that way it's about the best they can come up with They're saying simply, I feel comfortable because I've always done it that way. And that's okay, but we have to be careful to evaluate everything according to Scripture, right? This is that, said Peter, which was spoken of by the prophets. It's always good to say that. This is that. Some years ago, 1903, a Russian czar noticed that on the Kremlin grounds was a guard, a sentry, posted for no apparent reason. He was standing over in a corner, and there was nothing in the corner, but he had always been posted there. And so he he decided to research, why is that sentry standing over in that corner? He did a little research and come to find out that Catherine the Great, back in 1776, planted a rose bush in that corner and posted a sentry to guard the rose bush for a single night so that nobody would trample it. It was growing. Now, over a hundred years later, almost 130 years later, there is a sentry still guarding a now barren spot of dirt. So be careful if you say, we've always done it that way. You could find yourself guarding 100-year-old dead rose bushes. Traditions, celebrations, they ratify our faith. There's something else, and we are going to get into the text, but I want to touch on something that, that celebrations also do. Not only do they ratify our faith, they redeem our folklore. They redeem our folklore. Now listen carefully. By the time Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples, all sorts of mystical stories became attached, superstitious stories, to the Passover celebration. Jesus wasn't into them, but a lot of the Jews put this mythical attachment to Passover. For instance, in the Mishnah, the Jews stated that God gave the Passover, and when God gave the Passover to the Jews, he relinquished the marking of time to humans, took it out of his control, so to speak, and put it in our control. A superstition. 
It also became superstitious as to the keeping of the time that Jews outside of Palestine decided to add another day to what the Bible required just in case there was a lapse of time. They wanted to honor the Passover and not not do it. So they added extra time so they around the world would always keep the Passover and not violate the sacred day. So they attached this stuff. And here's my point. Jesus keeps the Passover, stripping it away of all of its superstition and then changing the meaning of what they understood the meaning to be and said, this is now fulfilling me. It's not about a sacrificial lamb. It's about a sacrificial person. It's not about the blood of a lamb. It's about the blood of a man. It's not about being delivered from Egypt. It's about being delivered from sin. And I have come to fulfill that. By the way, Jesus did the same thing with the Feast of Tabernacles, which, by the way, celebrated the fact that in the desert, God preserved his people and protected them for the years of wandering. Remember in the wilderness, they didn't have food, so God rained down manna. They didn't have water, so water came out of a rock. It was all miraculous. And the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated that. So one of the temple feasts was to take a jug of water and throw it on the temple courts and they would sing psalms to the Lord. God gave us water from the rock. It was on that day of the feast that Jesus stood up in the temple and said loudly, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He took that entire feast and changed it around to fulfill what he was all about. So here's the question. How do we respond to our celebrations, to our holidays? Let's say Christmas. Let's say Easter. Let's say Thanksgiving. Let's say even this day, Halloween. We can do a couple of things. We can retreat and say uh, those are all pagan in their origin, whether it's Christmas, Easter, or whatever, and we can turn from it, or we can say, let's redeem it. Let's redeem it. Let's use it as an opportunity, a platform to preach the gospel. I'll give you an example. Christmas. When was Jesus born? If you say December 25th, you'll get an F on the test. Because the truth is, nobody knows when Jesus was born. But we know this, almost certainly he wasn't born December 25th. Because shepherds don't keep their flocks by night out in the fields past October in Judea. So it's not December 25th. Uh, early church records showed that most of them believed it was sometime in the uh, spring of the year. May 20th was given by one of the early church fathers. April 19th, April 18th, and March 28th were all dates that were given by the earliest record keepers, not December 25th. If you go back in history, December 25th was sacred to the Babylonians. And then later on, it came and was sacred to the Romans. And this is how it worked. The 24th of December was called Mother Night in Babylon. And since they worshipped the sun, Baal, Baal, the chief god, was the controller of the sun, another god by the name of Tammuz, they believed, would be the incarnation of the sun. So on on Mother Night, they threw a Yule log. Ever heard of Yuletide greetings? Yule is Babylonian for infant. They threw the Yule log in the fire. It would burn up. And to celebrate the resurrection of Tammuz to new life, a tree was put in the house the next morning, celebrating the fact that we are conquering the darkness because it was the winter solstice. 
As time went on, the Romans sort of adopted this by two festivals called the Feast of the Unconquerable or Invincible Sun. Saturnalia was one of the feasts from December 24th or December 17th to the 24th. And then Brumalia, which was the 25th of December, the celebration, the darkness has been conquered. Now, about 336 A.D., after all of this Roman nonsense had been practiced, the church decided that they would fix the celebration of Jesus' birth on December 25th. They did this in the Western Empire. As soon as they did this in the Western Empire, Christians in the Eastern Empire, especially Mesopotamia, accused Western Christians of idolatry and sun-worshipping. Because they chose this date. Why did they choose that date to celebrate the birth of Christ? Simply to show triumph of Christ over paganism. Not to compete with them. Not to sell out to them. But to show, hey, our Christ, the light of the world, came into the darkness of the world and he conquers all. It was to counter the pagan festivals. It was to be proactive rather than reactive. And we could go on and on, and perhaps closer to Christmas we will, but Martin Luther was one of the first ones that decided the Christmas tree should be put in homes. Not because he was Babylonian worshiper, far from it if you know his history. What he decided is that this evergreen tree should speak of the tree in paradise that was lost. The Germans celebrated the paradise tree. But let's put lights on it, candles on it, to say that without Christ we would be in eternal darkness. Because Jesus is the light of the world. So they took something that perhaps did have pagan roots to it because we don't know when Jesus was born and said, let's talk about Jesus during this time and show that Jesus conquers all of that paganism. Of course, uh, Christmas has been embellished over time with uh, tales of Santa Claus, etc., the, the fat man in the red suit and the toys. But did you know that Santa Claus was something the Dutch church spoke of. They had somebody they called Sinterklaas. And it was Sint Niklaas. It was the contraction of his name. And this Nicholas they celebrated was the 4th century bishop of Myra, Nicholas, who was at the Council of Nicaea and stood up for the Trinity against the heretic Arius. And they celebrated him. Why? Because... He was a compassionate man. He helped the poor. He gave gifts to those who were in need. He helped counsel them. He delivered three girls from prostitution and gave them decent jobs. And so he was celebrated over time. So I'm not trying to justify what we do. I'm simply trying to say you don't need this year to get Santa claustrophobia. You don't need to react so strongly. You could tell children, do you know where Santa Claus comes from? Do you know where the Christmas tree comes from? Do you know where these celebrations come from? And you could use it, if you want, to preach the gospel with, to tell people about the light of the world that conquers all darkness. We could take celebration after celebration. Easter uh, comes the term from Ashtart, the Babylonian goddess, the consort of Baal, uh, called in Chaldean Ishtar, the Ishtar Gate. And uh, it's here's the idea. Uh, a, a, a wondrous egg fell from heaven, they said, into the Euphrates River. A fish rolled it to the banks. Dove settled on top of it. It opened up and hatched, voila, Ashtar. She came from heaven. 
the goddess from heaven. So she was celebrated in her temples with rabbits and eggs. And you go, oh no, I'll never eat another egg again. I'll never have a little colored bunny again. Relax. Once again, because that's pagan, the vernal equinox was being celebrated at that time, we can say, wait a minute. The world does understand in 2004 that Christians celebrate Christmas and Easter. It's about the only time they'll talk about Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus during that time. It's about the only time a lot of them will come to church. Bring them to church. Preach the gospel to them. Use every opportunity you can to use that as a platform to redeem the folklore. Redeem the folklore. We could go to Halloween. Halloween is a pagan festival. But let me just tell you a little bit about it. It comes from the Celtic times. Uh, when the uh, English and the Irish settled in uh, the area of Great Britain. And their priests, the Druids, celebrated the 31st of October called Samhain. And uh, it was the eve of the new year, which was November 1st. And they had this superstition that during that time, because they know winter is looming on the horizon, again, it's the sun, the days are getting shorter and shorter. We're losing the sun. They believe that the veil between the uh, spirit world and the living world was at its thinnest on October 31st and that on the evening of October 31st, dead spirits could cross through the veil and come into the land of the living. So they were paranoid. They offered sacrifices, even human sacrifices. Around 700 A.D., a group of Christians decided enough of that, enough of that. That's paganism. And they decided to combat Samhain with the festival of All Saints Day, November 1st, saying basically to the pagan world, if you're going to celebrate the dead, we're going to celebrate the dead saints and the living saints who will be in God's kingdom forever and ever, vanquishing death by life. Also, October 31st is called Reformation Day celebrating Martin Luther's putting the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door. So there's great history. Now tonight we're going to have a celebration here at the church. Are we celebrating Halloween? No. Are we celebrating the devil? No. We're celebrating the fact, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We want to give kids a safe place to come. We want to give them the gospel as they come because we're inviting the community, not just the Christian community. Give them a safe alternative and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. So I say you can run from it or you can use celebrations to reaffirm your faith, to redeem your folklore. And here's the third reason we celebrate. Celebrations reinforce our fellowship. Celebrations reinforce our fellowship. In verse 18 of our text, Jesus said, Go into the city of a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover or celebrate the Passover at your house with my disciples. You don't celebrate Passover alone. You don't celebrate Pentecost alone. You celebrate it with people. The whole idea of the feasts and celebrations of Israel. Let's gather people together and establish our community of faith together. 
It was very interactive, Passover was. They sat leisurely for hours over a meal and they ate and they prayed and they sang. We are a blended family here. We come from different places, different traditions, different backgrounds. But but here we are. We're together. We're a family. And the more we can gather together over celebrations, the more community, spiritual community, can be built. By the way, just as an aside, food is a great community builder. I know that doesn't sound very spiritual, but but I take my cues from our Savior. He loved to eat. Did you know that? When he wanted to restore hope to the 12 disciples, he came to the Sea of Galilee while they were fishing, and he cooked them breakfast. I like that. So I know what you're thinking. Okay, Skip, next week you're cooking to breakfast. I'm not Jesus. In fact, at one point, he even invites himself to lunch. He goes to Jericho. There's Zacchaeus. He's up in a sycamore tree. Jesus stops and says, come on down. We're going to your house for lunch. It's a loose paraphrase, but that's what he invites himself over for lunch. When he wants to uh, ask for intimate fellowship, he says to the church, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open the door, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me all over a meal. So let me encourage you in things like coming early for Wednesday night, if you can, and coming to the 5.30, 6 o'clock time where we eat together and share a meal, or our Dinner of Eight program that we're starting up. We're couples, four couples, eight of them, get together informally over a period of time, have dinner, and get to know one another. So celebrations reinforce fellowship. They build community. They do something else. They encourage sensitivity. In verse 20, When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say, Is it I? Jesus did an amazing thing here. We would say he let down his guard. He was very honest with them. This wasn't a polished scene. He said, One of you here, my friends, is going to betray me. And this caused an emotional response. In the midst of this celebration, they became sensitive to it and very, very sorrowful. You see, celebrations that build community will also encourage sensitivity to each other. Why? Because we're getting to know each other. We're getting to love each other. We're getting to let our guards down with each other a little bit more. We'll be sensitive to one another more and more as we go on. Have you ever heard people say, I don't need church. I'm not into organized religion. Now, that's a cop-out for a number of things. It could be, I don't want accountability, or I don't want vulnerability. I never want to get to a place where I have to unveil myself again and ever get hurt by anyone else. And so I'll just say, I'm not into organized religion. We need this kind of fellowship and sensitivity. The Bible uses the term one another One another, 70 times, 70 times. It it shows me that it's adamant about us getting together and becoming a part of one another. A third thing they do, and we'll close on this note, they produce festivity. They produce festivity. In verse 27, 
He took the cup. He gave thanks. And by the way, they would all corporately give thanks in Hebrew and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. He says what it's all about. Verse 30, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they thanked and they sang. Have you noticed that every service we have here, whether it's a large group or a small group gathering, we sing. You know why? It's not just to uh, fill in time for latecomers. It's not like, yeah, we need 20 minutes of that song stuff as people are coming and parking. That's not why we do it. Here's why we sing. We have a reason to sing. We have a song. God put a song in our hearts. If anybody has a reason to sing and be thankful, it's redeemed people called and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. By the way, it's interesting that in the ancient feasts and celebrations of Israel, God gives them a command and says, you shall rejoice. I love that. You shall rejoice. That's an order. Be happy. Kaufman Kohler stated in the Jewish Encyclopedia, no language has as many words for joy and rejoicing as Hebrew. In the Old Testament, he states, 13 Hebrew roots found in 27 different words are used for some aspect of joy or joyful celebration in religious worship. So, all of these seasons that we're entering into Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, Easter, are opportunities to be great monuments for us to worship and celebrate Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, Our happy God should be worshipped by a happy people. He deserves it. And I'll tell you what, especially around Christmas time, when you go into the malls and they're crowded and people are grumpy, i got to buy that gift. It's a great opportunity to rejoice and tell them why. I want to close with something written by Dr. Paul Reese. He said, some time ago, I saw an intriguing title. The title was Gloomy Caesar and Happy Jesus. In this short article that followed, the author contrasted what we know of Tiberius Caesar, who ruled Rome in A.D. 30, with what we know of our Savior. Of Caesar Tiberius, with all of his power, pomp, and possessions, the historian Pliny writes... He is the gloomiest of mankind. But of Jesus, we read that sitting in the shadows of the cross, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them. And when the supper was over, they sang a hymn and they went out. And Dr. Reese concludes by saying, you and I are not to be dispensers of Caesar's gloom, but transmitters of Jesus' joy. That's why we celebrate. Let's pray. Lord, your word tells us over and over again, shout to the Lord, sing to the Lord, give glory to his name. A happy people should be transmitters of joy from the happy God. It's in keeping with your character, Lord. And so in this time of entering into seasons of celebration. I pray that they would be used by us to reaffirm our faith, to redeem 
our folklore and to reestablish, reaffirm, reignite our fellowship with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand and sing.